0: Hello and welcome to The G Word. My name is Vivian Parry and I'm the Head of Public Engagement at Genomics England. Now people tend to think of the impact of a genetic diagnosis purely in terms of treatment or the impact on future physical health. We don't so often think of the impact on mental health, both on the person directly affected or on the wider family. For some, there's crippling anxiety about the future. For others, there's guilt about what this diagnosis might mean for wider family members. And there's grief too, as the future imagined for a child is suddenly taken away. And all of this, and I've only scratched the surface, is played out in families already vulnerable and deeply stressed by illness in the family. So in this Mental Health Awareness Week, we thought we'd look at the impact of a genetic diagnosis on mental health, and what we can do to reduce this burden for families. With me, three people each seeing this from a different viewpoint. First, from that of the parents and the family, Kim Winter. She's the clinical director and founder of Rare Minds, a non-profit organisation providing specialist online psychotherapy and counselling services to rare disease patients and family members. And Kim has been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. Then from a researcher's point of view, Helen Dolling. Helen is a researcher at the Centre for Family Research at the University of Cambridge. Her research investigates psychosocial impact of the diagnostic process on parents, drawing on her involvement in the Next Generation study of 521 families. She's now involved in the Peregrine study, the follow-on to this. And finally, from the genetic counsellor. Melanie Watson is the lead genetic counsellor for the Wessex Clinical Genetic Services and Honorary Senior Lecturer at Southampton University. She provides genetic counselling to individuals and families affected by a risk of genetic-related disorders with a special interest in psychiatric disorders. So first of all, what are the main issues that parents face or even individuals face when given a genetic diagnosis? Kim, let's start with you. Well, I think the impacts are profound and complex, actually,
1: Vivian, and it depends very much on the condition that's being tested for, certainly with families and parents that we see. There may be the initial relief of getting a diagnosis, but then you're plummeted into a world of continued and ongoing uncertainty very often. Treatments may or may not be available, you may be dealing with the impact on your wider family and the opinions and, and views that everyone has about how it should be dealt with or managed. And it's not unusual for us and certainly the, the families or individuals that come to us for us to hear of it being a little bit like a, a small bomb going off in your family and the impact on relationships have a ripple out effect over time. So I think You know, receiving a diagnosis is always a life-changing event. And as you said in your introduction, you know, you're coming to terms with a different imagined future for yourself or your child. You're dealing with grief and loss around what you had hoped things might be, perhaps. And the guilt and the anxiety of what it's going to mean and, and those fears for the future. So it's always very profoundly impactful. And that impact I think unravels over time too. Different families, different individuals process the news at different times, as I'm sure you know Melanie and,
0: and Helen will confirm. Melanie, how are diagnoses received?
2: So diagnoses can be received either in an environment that's, you know, quite intense in an acute environment when a child's still under acute care, such as intensive care, or it can be sort of received in a more sort of organized way. You had opportunity to prepare the family, or there may be a family history, so they're already aware of that condition in the family. So it, it can be received, you know, in Very unexpected circumstances in an acute situation, or in in a more sort of managed situation where people are aware of this family history,
0: and there's also the impact when it comes completely out of the blue, and the baby or child appears perfectly healthy.
2: Absolutely, and that can be a complete shock and. I think at that time of having that shot, you're given an awful lot of information, or sometimes even a lack of information. But you, you're given quite complex information—a genetic test result, which maybe doesn't make sense, like you say, in the way the child appears, or in in your own experience. So as genetic counsellors, we're very much attuned to sort of assessing someone's family history, interpreting what's happened in the family before, and trying to hang that on the experience within the family and the experience that individual to help them make sense. And When I'm training new genetic counsellors I always say it's about finding that shared meaning with the genetic information but also that individual and family experience.
0: Helen what does research tell us about the impact on mental health?
3: So I suppose one thing to maybe mention first of all is that when we talk about rare diseases or various genetic conditions it's such a broad base that um, saying how it affects one is not necessarily going to be generalizable to a different patient group or or different condition. But also even within individuals within the same family, you can see quite uh, different responses to being diagnosed or receiving a diagnosis in one's child of a genetic condition. So the responses can be very different. And research shows that In general, getting a diagnosis doesn't seem to have long-term effects necessarily in terms of having depression or anxiety related to that. However, there are significant individual differences in different conditions and dependent on what that diagnosis entails sometimes can also have very specific impacts on whether it possibly Demonstrates likelihood of life-limiting condition than the parents, obviously, or children. Uh, with that, will, will have very different experiences from somebody who has a stable disease with maybe quite mild symptoms. So it's difficult to give a broad answer to that question because research, obviously, that looks at either specific conditions, say, um, excellent conditions, where you may have some. You know developmental aspects involved and physical aspects and cognitive aspects uh, versus something that maybe requires uh, some medication which might be long term, but nevertheless enables person to lead a fairly normal life.
0: Now Kim, I guess what we're talking about here is diagnosis, and we all think, oh, that's a certain thing. but actually uncertainty is a great part of genetic conditions because you don't know how they're going to play out necessarily. And even the diagnosis itself may be less certain than people imagine.
1: And that how to live with uncertainty over time is a really strong theme that emerges with the couples and families and individuals we work with. And, of course, we know there's a strong association between uncertainty and anxiety. We saw that through the pandemic in the ordinary population, and I think it's well understood as as a link now. And and just going back to one of the things that, that Helen was saying, actually, the idea that a diagnosis is processed sort of immediately is not something we see in the families that we're working with. We run dealing with diagnosis workshops, and when we first started running them, we assumed that it would be for individuals or couples in the first, perhaps, year post-diagnosis. What we found was that people were wanting to sign up to them, perhaps one, two, three, four, maybe five years post-diagnosis, because they hadn't really had the opportunity to process that information and the meaning for their life and and the impact on their relationships and coming together with others to have that sort of conversation was enormously helpful and that theme of uncertainty figured very highly in those workshops too how do you live with the uncertainty over time of when a condition symptoms may start to emerge or the prognosis for your your own life or your child's life over time so so it's it's a really interesting one about how diagnosis is processed over time, not just in the moment of delivery, which we often focus on too.
0: And as you said, Kim, it is a bit like a bomb going off. And one of the effects of that bomb is often marital or relationship breakdown. Sadly, I mean, I used to be an agony aunt on a national newspaper. And so often I would have letters from parents or a parent of a child that had had a genetic diagnosis And it's also, as I mentioned in the introduction, it's about what that impact is for the rest of the family. I mean, Melanie, families are difficult enough as it is. I mean, heaven knows when we all get together at Christmas, (laughs) you're wanting to lock the door immediately and not let them in again. But these things can have a terrible impact on the wider family, can't they?
2: Absolutely. And when we first see someone, we definitely spend a lot of time around that sort of psychosocial assessment around the family. And, you know, whether there is any isolation, what support is available, who are the key people in your family that you would seek support from, and very much what is the family story so far, because that will give you a sense of what's there to support that person going forward. And also, we spend quite a lot of time Going back, looking at how they've coped in situations of uncertainty or unexpected news before and sort of identify people's coping strategies, whether they sit with uncertainty well, whether they're real information seekers. And I think that makes a big difference. And within families, you'll have people that have different approaches to dealing with such emotional news.
1: We see that a lot in the work that we do, Melanie. So I just think it's so interesting hearing Melanie talk about it because often with couples that we work with, we're, we're focusing very much on that different coping strategies. Are you someone who tends to go, actually, let's just not talk about it too much. We'll deal with problems as they arise. Or are you the person who has to become the expert in that particular condition? And then the other partner is going, oh, do we never get time off from this? And the tensions that arise, because of that and then the tensions in wider family too of who thinks which approach is better so you never quite know I think there's often you know the ways in which couple relationships are fragile a genetic diagnosis will worm its way into those fragilities and we could say it's an opportunity to look at a couple relationship and help it be more robust But, you know, there's a lot of ifs and buts in that process. But certainly couples and families can
0: need a lot of support with that, you know, adjusting. So let's concentrate now on that support and the best practice. So what kind of support do parents need? Helen, what does your research tell you about the best kind of support that parents should be given?
3: This is a really fascinating topic that is emerging in my research. I have to say, obviously, the analysis is, is ongoing. So I have to frame it in, in the light of that. But what I'm seeing is that those individual needs between fathers and mothers, and often it does go down the gender lines, are quite different. And parents' ability to take on that information over time also varies. And the way that they respond to the diagnosis is, is quite different often. In at least the Couples that I have interviewed, and I've interviewed mothers and fathers separately, uh, one of the things they have really appreciated and stated is having that interview on their own to talk individually about their concerns and their experiences. And they are very unique, different often from the person that they are in a relationship with. And that, of course, is sometimes related to their own Background as, as a child growing up in their own family, the experiences they had and their relationship with the parents, all of which plays into how they then experience a parenting, transitioning to parenting as a new parent with a child with disability or a genetic condition. And the way that they reflect on their usage of social support groups is also quite different often. It tends to be mothers, but not always, who are the ones that may seek out social support through Facebook groups or condition-specific online groups. And the fathers either benefit sometimes vicariously through the spouse by having snippets of that information delivered to them, but at a time and Pace that they can cope with sometimes, and uh, and uh, often the fathers who have looked for these support networks say that actually there are very few fathers on those social online groups, or they cannot cope with the level of information, especially if it's quite difficult information to take on board that is shared on those platforms. So there are definitely very different needs. And then there is a communication aspect as well that um, was already referenced before me, that parents are negotiating these new boundaries and new ways of living together and making a future in a situation that is sometimes uncertain for extended periods of time, but also unknown in terms of what to expect or how to parent a child for whom the condition might be such a rare one that there is very limited information that they can rely on to help them navigate that. So yes, parents' differences are quite different.
0: So Melanie, you're both teaching baby genetic counsellors how to navigate these very tricky waters. But what's your advice for genetic counsellors on how to lessen the impact on mental health of a diagnosis?
2: I think it's very much getting the sense of the individual in front of you. It's always talked of as being genetic counsellors, being a comprehensive educational process. And I quite often say to them, yes, there's lots of information that we can give somebody, but it's whether it's fertile ground to receive that information at that point in time so you can give them the information but quite often it's around recognizing that the grief they're going through is a process the education is a process the support is a process so we very much try and take a sort of a drip drip approach is how we'd um, say to talk about it through the family when it feels the right time to actually give them that information and quite often it's the individual or family member in front of you that knows when the right time is and they will come back to you so we always have our families under review is how they stay with us and they might come back to us another time during the lifespan when someone's planning to have a child or grandchild and they want more information at that time so it's it's supporting where they're at at that moment giving them as much information as you can but then maybe reinforcing that information During the process of the emotions that they're processing from having that information in the first place.
0: So, Kim, what are you hearing from parents and families about what works for them and what doesn't? Well, I think if we're talking about diagnosis, just to follow on what Melanie is saying, really,
1: I think that people take time to process diagnosis at different times in different ways. So that Feeling that they can return, preferably to the same person again, perhaps to ask the same questions again, and have time to process it in their own particular time frame. And you can't predict that. You know, we have people who've come to us, perhaps been given a diagnosis maybe five or six years ago, may not have had any particular symptoms, it may not be particularly impacting their life, but then they come to us and say, so I had this diagnosis a number of years ago. I can't even remember particularly who I saw or what happened, but it was this. And now I'm having to really deal with it. So I think this this notion of being able to process different aspects of diagnosis at different points is really important. You've already mentioned about how it impacts on couple relationships, and I think that's something that is going to be increasingly important to attend to as genomics and genetics really takes forward, supporting couple relationships, communication and coping strategies. So it's not one thing I think
0: we're saying that you know that people need help with. And we shouldn't forget the intense financial strain this can place on families because often one member of the family at least will have to give up work in order to care for an affected child. And there are all sorts of things, you know, whether it's travelling to hospitals and appointments, specialist equipment, there are all sorts of financial burdens that can just tip over that already difficult situation that so many people find themselves in now. And that's an added burden. So, Is there enough support for people with children with a genetic diagnosis from existing mental health charities, for instance? Or do you think they don't quite understand the problems that are being faced? Let's go to you, Kim, on that one first.
1: Well, what we hear from the individuals and families we work with is that it's quite difficult, first of all, to access mental health support if it's in relation to the diagnosis or living with a genetic condition. And I think that goes down often to the general lack of awareness around rare conditions generally. So some mental health care practitioners may be quite apprehensive of, of dipping a toe into that area. A lot of services are stretched and are closely benchmarking their you know their services accordingly. So if someone turns up with an unusual condition they haven't heard of, they may see it as not under their remit. But we also see clients who come to us who've tried to access things like iApt or or other psychological services and have said it's not really fit for purpose for their needs. That you know you need time to process the meaning of a diagnosis for you as an individual in your life. Anxiety, you know, CBT can be helpful, but it's not really the whole picture or the whole answer. I mean I do think to go back to what Melanie is saying, you, you know, that A lot of people we see are not given diagnoses by genetic counsellors or in a sort of timely or, or sort of calm or considered manner. They may happen sort of very ad hoc or by letter or over the phone with very little sort of follow on information or signposting. And I think people often then feel quite stranded and quite abandoned. And that's, you know, that's something I think we need to get better at moving forward, training healthcare professionals themselves to deliver diagnoses and, and grow the genetic counsellor workforce too that can then work with people my,
0: like myself. We're always keen to grow the genetic counsellor network. <laughs> <didn't> We're <know> <laughs> working. I think you're all keen on <laughs> uh, but, but Melanie, can I come to you? Because I know that you have a particular interest in psychiatric disorders. Does the diagnosis of a psychiatric condition have a greater impact on mental health in the family than non-psychiatric conditions?
2: Um, I wouldn't say so specifically, Specifically, um, it's all those emotions that you get with any other genetic diagnosis, that sense of grief and loss of the imagined future or, or um, someone's own identity, but also those usual emotions around anything that has an inherited element sort of anger, guilt, blame. I think there is a little bit of stigma and taboo maybe around mental illness and psychiatric illness in particular. And we've actually spent quite a lot of time getting genetic counsellors to be comfortable around discussing psychiatric illness and making sure that they... I think it's it's almost feels like we're talking about bombs going off in a sense, the, the bomb going off a psychiatric illness. It, it, I think it's our own fears of our own mental health, because we all know we maybe it's a fine line between us and them. We all go through times in our own lives where we have acute sort of mental health periods, when we have periods of stress. And I think there's a lot of fear around that. And quite often with a genetic diagnosis that might have a psychiatric element, maybe that isn't always discussed to the same extent as if there's a physical element to the condition. And we very much are training the new workforce in in genetic counselling to be
0: comfortable with that element. And there's always, of course, with psychiatric conditions, but also with other genetic conditions that you're healthy, but you're looking for a symptom all the time. So you're anticipating. And Helen, I wonder whether this anticipating the future when you haven't actually got symptoms when you're diagnosed is something that you've encountered in your research?
3: Parents talk about hypervigilance and being mindful of the possibility of their child deteriorating, if that is anticipation. It hasn't been a major theme that I have noted uh, necessarily in the 91 interviews that I have conducted. But in literature, yes, uh, there is definitely references to that quite uh, frequently within specific conditions. So parents whose children have seizures are constantly, for example, experiencing hypervigilance and uh, and this anticipation and the uncertainty about when the next one might happen. So they live with that day-to-day, especially if the seizure frequency is quite present in in day-to-day lives. I did want to come in on, on, on the support of the mental health and parents accessing that, if I may, in response to what Kim and Melanie were saying earlier. And that is that for some parents, acknowledging that they are in need of support, especially if it's to do with anxiety or depression or mental health-related issues, is, is quite a barrier for them. Um, first, uh, they are thrown into a situation where perhaps previously they have been entirely independent, strong individuals who manage their lives uh, in uh, amazing ways. And and suddenly uh, they feel that they, they don't know how to go on from from the moment of diagnosis. And that, that may be not even genetic to start with. Perhaps it starts with symptoms or being hospitalised and so on. The process may be taking quite a few years. And then we talked about the uh, adaptation to the diagnosis or, or the new life over time and how that can be variable. But for some parents, that might be to with personality or it could be Personal circumstances and life experiences, and the way that they have always dealt with complexities or challenges in their life before. Crossing that barrier of asking for help is, is a major milestone and, and the complexity. And in my interview, certainly some of the fathers, in particular, but often also mothers, and that isn't related to necessarily one's socioeconomic background, but uh, it can be in in any background that that this is an obstacle to admit that one needs support to manage their mental well-being and, and knowing how to access that or how to best go about it. So what parents are in effect saying is that if it's framed in in the way that this is mental health issue or support even the word support in itself can be experienced as something quite negative and something that is not necessarily available to them uh, in the concept of their own personality and, and and individual identity as a strong person.
0: Kim, you want to come in there. Yeah,
1: I was agreeing actually with what Helen was saying around, you know, stigma around mental health is very real. But I think what we are very keen within Rare Minds and probably all of us on this call to say is that it's it's perfectly ordinary and understandable to need to have some time to talk to someone to process the news of a diagnosis and the meaning of it for your life. That doesn't mean you have mental illness or a mental health problem it's it's a perfectly ordinary part of adjustment and i think the more that we can integrate those sort of mental well-being and emotional well-being aspects into ordinary rare disease care and diagnosis the better actually for everyone we'll all get more comfortable with those sorts of conversations
2: and very much so, just echo what you're saying, we very much try to normalise those emotions and that you'd expected to have those emotions associated with this type of diagnosis and that, and that those emotions will, you know, go up and down and you'll face new things uh, throughout different stages of your life where they might come to the fore again and you go through a period where you feel able to cope and, you know, recognise that burden of the disease and... you know, the physical demands of that and the emotional demands of that on a day-to-day life of that that whole family and that individual. And unfortunately, as genomic counsellors or genetic counsellors, we're given appointments with patients with the initial diagnosis, but we don't have that capacity to follow up all the time because there are so many people having a new diagnosis. So quite often it's increasing all the time. So that capacity to follow up, and I quite often get people say that you know they're, if they keep asking, we'll make <laughs> we'll make it you know the we'll find the capacity to see them as a follow-up. But if they're not asking, we don't really know what's happening to those people. And I think that's the worry the people that have sort of have that diagnosis and then disappear. And, you know, we give them information about support groups and charities. And sometimes there's quite a lot of investment in specific diseases, but the more rare diseases, there's very little out there. And then they're left in the, the usual mental health services that a GP can offer. And as someone alluded to earlier, quite often, you know, a counsellor, general counsellor, yes, will be off, able to offer support, but may not realise the impact of that particular genetic condition. And then they feel slightly lost when they're having that counselling that this person doesn't really recognise what they're going through and the burden
0: of their specific disease. So let's now look at the very, very practical, and I'm going to give you my Vivian Parry magic wand in a moment to tell you what would be the ideal situation. But if you're a parent with a recent diagnosis, listening to this, Kim, how do they access help and support? What's the best route for them? Well, first port of call is usually through patient
1: organizations, actually, who do a fabulous job of supporting emotional well-being and information around specific conditions and also generally. And you probably are all aware here of great organizations like Genetic Alliance UK, like Unique, like Gene People. A number of those are increasingly, you know, using services like mine who have counsellors who are trained in the impact of a rare condition, both generally, but also specifically. So I think it's a case of persevering. It's a case of finding your way to the best support for you at the right time. And that might be couples therapy. It might be individual therapy. Patient organisations are a really good place to start. I do think we also need to get better at, at encouraging healthcare professionals to signpost to them. We still have people who find their way to us and they say, oh, we, we just happened to Google
0: you, we just happened to come across you. Know, we're going to be delivering diagnoses. Because we tend to be good at giving out literature and information about you know, the physical manifestations of a particular condition but we're not so good at dealing with the support Melanie what's the best way for parents to get the best information and support apart from many more Um, genetic as Kim was saying it's
2: very much around signposting we definitely make sure we do that and we do that in a written form with we either give them information within the appointment about specific charities or organisations that may offer future support and as many web links as we possibly can. But I think the other aspect of it is actually... Um, thinking about them in the wider sort of network of their healthcare ongoing in an ongoing sense and making sure that we educate the wider healthcare professionals such as nurses about um, some of these rare conditions and the impact of those on-, on families so that they don't feel isolated when they go further along the process of the diagnosis and there's other healthcare professionals that are aware of that impact.
0: And we should say that there's nothing like having you know, other people who've been through the same thing to lean on. That's so, so important. Helen, where are the big gaps in terms of the research in this area? What don't we know that we really need to know to help support people with their mental health during diagnosis?
3: There is a obviously wide range of research. Uh, What we know is that uh, mental health cannot be separated necessarily from physical health and and other needs as well. So families have emotional, cognitive, behavioural and informational needs and social support needs. There is a whole range of research that is kind of converging on on these aspects that uh, parents go through similar processes in in some ways, but the timing of those can be different and very individual, as we spoke about uh, before. For some people, they get on with life as if nothing had happened and and try and normalise things, and then it may hit them years down the line. And for others, uh, that early process of getting the diagnosis is a real shock, and especially if that has come unexpectedly uh, out of the blue or very early on. Um, However, the genetic diagnosis can be helpful in adjustment to the diagnosis and moving forward with their lives by having relevant information and support put around the family and the individuals within that, according to their own personal needs as well. So what research is showing as it's coming forward through different groups in Canada, in Australia, in America, in Europe, in UK, um, all researching genetic conditions and rare conditions in particular are gradually finding very very similar things and it's not necessarily the diagnosis per se that makes a difference but uh, it's processing of that diagnosis and the support that is there and of course there are risk factors that individuals may have Uh, they may already have had prior mental health difficulties in the past and may be more vulnerable they may have had difficult childhood as a child growing up in the family and that also can attribute or contribute to how they're processing their parenting journey and um, managing the situation and then as Vivian you pointed out earlier there are also financial difficulties that may emerge as a result of having to parent a child or, or having a genetic condition oneself where one has to give up work in order to manage that uh, situation and of course many conditions uh, impact on sleep and uh, that also is a factor and uh, causes further vulnerabilities
0: So what I'm hearing from all of you is that we don't perhaps give mental health support the focus that it needs, and that it's really something that we need to concentrate on in the future, particularly, as I said, because Genomics England is giving more and more of these kinds of diagnoses out to parents. And we need to make sure that they're fully supported, not just with the kind of information needs, but with the support that they need through organisations such as yours, Kim, and of course, through genetic counsellors like you, Melanie. And there is still some research to be done, I suspect, about the best way To deliver this kind of mental support. So thank you all three of you for being with us today. We really appreciate the time that you've given to us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and if you'd like to look at our back catalogue for the G Word, which is extensive, do please go to your favourite podcast source and have a look through all of those. And if you'd like to recommend this We always like that very much because it means that other people have more chance of finding this. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.